you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1? Proverbs chapter 1. Last week we saw in 1 Kings chapter 3 where Solomon asked for wisdom and the Lord had granted that to him. And this week we're going to begin through the book of Proverbs getting a deeper understanding of what that wisdom really entails. So we'll read the first seven verses this week and then John is going to pick up with verse 8 next week. Proverbs chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a, and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is that we would gain real wisdom. That we would gain the kind of wisdom that doesn't just come from experience and hardship, that doesn't just come from books that we read or schools that we attend, but the kind of wisdom that is found in you and in you alone. The kind of wisdom that you give as a gift of heaven. The kind of wisdom that allows us to navigate marriages and parenting and singleness. The kind of wisdom that allows us to endure in the midst of hardship and miscarriages and barrenness and, and disappointment and business failure. The kind of wisdom that allows us to avoid the deception of temptation and the kind of wisdom that enables us to thrive as the people of God here flourishing even in the midst of a broken world and a perverse generation. I ask, Lord, that you would make us wise and that you would make us humble that we might increase in that wisdom. We ask these things now in the person who is wisdom, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So this handsome devil is a man by the name of Descartes. And he famously gave the line that many of us have heard, maybe not all of us understand its context. I think, therefore I am. And Descartes arrives there not from a position of certainty, but out of a position of doubt, in the context of doubt. Actually, the full quote is, is I doubt, therefore I think. And I think, therefore I am. See, what Descartes began to do is he began to question everything. And the question that Descartes had and that he posed as the premise of his, of his philosophical research was, how can I actually know that anything is real? How can I actually know that anything is truthful? How can I know that anything is absolute? And so he goes through all of his life and throughout all of the world and he begins to deconstruct and he begins to doubt everything. And he confronts his world with such doubt that he's left with nothing and he's in the midst of despair. And then something occurs to Descartes. Well, I have doubts and the doubts are real. And the doubts are the result of thought. So if the doubts are real, the thoughts must be real. And since I have them... I have the doubts, I have the thoughts, then the one certainty that I have is that I am real. And so what Descartes began to do 
So he began to reconstruct the world, not from the top down, but from the inside out. Starting with himself as the only absolute in the universe, I think, therefore I am. Therefore, that which is real, that which is true, that which is absolute begins in me. And he began to reconstruct his world with himself as the center. And he, because of that, is considered the father of modern thought. Why? Why? What is the postmodern philosophy? My truth. My truth. You find your truth. I'm going to find my truth because there is nothing absolute. There is nothing that I can be certain is true except what I think and except what I feel and except what I want. And since the only thing that I can be certain is true is what I feel and what I think and what I doubt and what I want, then I now must reconstruct all of my worldview based on what I know to be true myself. Well, what happens? Moral chaos happens. Because now we don't have one set of truth, one establishment, one pillar upon which we can build our life, one foundation upon which everything else is constructed upon. Now we have seven billion different perspectives, seven billion different truths, different version of the truth, seven billion different absolutes. And so now we can begin to redefine what marriage is. Now we can begin to doubt and question the reality of gender identity. Now gender roles are in question because what is actually real? What is actually true? Well, what's extraordinary when we come to Proverbs chapter 1 is that Proverbs presents wisdom as being the polar opposite of Descartes. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. So I must be the center of all that actually is. And Proverbs chapter 1 says, no, 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 no. There is one far greater. There is yet another foundation that is beyond you. One that is more real than you. One that is more true than you. And so the question that we must come into Proverbs chapter 1 asking ourselves, is our way of thinking working? Is the way of the thinking of our age, is it bringing more confusion and chaos or more order and honor? Is our way of thinking, is it bringing more joy and delight and peace and contentment? Or is it bringing greater dissatisfaction and discontentment and lack of peace in our lives? Could it be? Because we have gotten so wrapped up in the thinking of this age and the thinking of this world that we have lost the blazing center of reality which calibrates our hearts and calibrates our minds to that which is actually dependable, that which is actually true. And so what we see in Proverbs chapter 1 and then expounded on throughout all of the book of Proverbs is the essence of of real wisdom. The essence of true wisdom. Wisdom. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 is really the prologue to the, all, uh, the, the whole book. So you, the first nine chapters of, of Proverbs is kind of an introduction to Proverbs. And then chapter, ver, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 is kind of an introduction to the introduction. So he must have been like a Baptist preacher, right? To kind of have that kind of set up. But it's given us here in, in these first seven verses in this prologue the key which unlocks the rest of the Proverbs. And I would propose to you to hear that we're here in the story of the big, 
uh, we're, we're in a series called The Big Story in which we're seeing the grand meta-narrative of all of Scripture. And I would tell you that in these first seven verses of Proverbs, it's not just the key that unlocks the Proverbs. It's the key that unlocks all of Scripture. It's the key. It's the thread which weaves together the entire big story. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is that wisdom is a pursuit. So we look at the essence of wisdom, that wisdom is a pursuit. That there are two audiences that is aimed at here in the prologue that the book of Proverbs is written primarily to. One is the primary audience and the second is a surprise throughout the book of Proverbs as the simple. The simple. Now this is primarily who the book of Proverbs is given over to. It's given for the training of the simple. Now the word simple, it can mean gullible. Or it can mean naive. It's someone who is easily taken in. It's someone who doesn't fully understand how the world works. It's someone who doesn't have a lot of life experience. Rather, they're naive and they're gullible. You'll remember that, I've told you before, that in Hebrew poetry, they often wrote in what is called parallelisms. And so you have like line A, and then you have line B, and line A and line B are saying the exact same thing, except line B is helping you really understand what he's saying in line A. And this is important, because we have that here in verse 4. You have the simple, and you have the youth. And the implication is, is that this is essentially the same person. That the naive and the gullible are synonymous with the young and the inexperienced. Now, what's important for us to think about when we come here and think about the the simple or the young is that it is not an indictment upon your character in and of itself to call you simple. The truth is, is that all of us start here. All of us start here. And the problem actually is, it's actually more problematic if you resent the fact that you're young and you try to pretend like you're not simple when you actually are simple. The problem is not whether or not you are gullible or naive or young or inexperienced. The problem only lies if you stay there. If you remain gullible. If you remain naive. If you remain inexperienced. If you remain easily deceived by the wisdoms and the swirling winds of this age. Now what I found interesting is that the word simple, I'm going to come over here beside it, can actually be translated accurately as open-minded. Now think about that. Is there any virtue in postmodern America, post-Christian America, than open-mindedness? That's, that is the virtue of all virtues, that we should open our minds to everybody else's truth, that we should open our minds to everybody else's perspective, that we should open our minds to what might be right that we have never considered to be right before. But what our society calls a virtue, the book of Proverbs is here calling it a vice. Now, of course, there is a type of open-mindedness that is good. The kind of open-mindedness, open-mindedness that says, I don't know everything, that is humble and teachable and willing to receive instruction, that is good and right and reasonable. And it is actually the desired position of the, of the simple and the young. 
But there is an open-mindedness that is prevalent in our age, that is prevalent among our youth, that is prevalent even among the millennials all the way through that says, not only must I be open to what I don't know, I must be open to anything. Anything might be true. Anything might be right. Anything might be reasonable. This is the way of the simple. And what you have to understand is what Proverbs, chapter, what Proverbs says is that the way of the simple is lethal if they stay in it. It's lethal if they stay in it. Look at, verse, look at what I have there at the bottom. Chapter 27, verse 12. It says the prudent sees danger. That's the, the prudent being the opposite of the simple, right? The prudent sees danger and he hides himself. So, so he sees the flag and he takes refuge. He takes shelter. He finds himself a fortress. But the simple, they do what? The implication is they see the same signs, they see the same warnings, they see the same dangers, but they go on and they suffer for it. Can I tell you this morning what I want you to avoid is suffering? What I want you to avoid is an identity crisis. What I want you to avoid is crying into your pillow at night in shame and guilt. What I want you to avoid tonight is the ability of being deceived and deceived in such a way that brings you harm as a person and leaves you scarred for life and invites trauma and hardship into your life. So you, you must have the right kind of open-mindedness and reject the wrong kind of open-mindedness. In fact, verse 3 says that for the simple there is a responsibility, check this out, to receive, to receive instruction. That the simple must receive instruction. That is, they, they must open their hearts to it. They must open their, their minds to it in humility and in teachability. They must come to those that are beyond them, those that are wiser than they are, those that are more experienced than they, than they are, those that know more than they know. They must come to them and they must seek out this desire, th this truth, and this wisdom as to what is right. That there must be in them a pursuit of wisdom, a, a hunger for wisdom, a drive for wisdom, a thirst for wisdom. And, and if they avoid this pursuit of wisdom, then, 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 then the need is, is damaging. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about your life. Are you pursuing wisdom? Are you teachable right now? Is your spirit humbled before those that come and want to offer you insight? Or are you the kind of open-minded that as a 10th grader, you will prioritize the counsel and advice of your sophomore classmates over the wisdom and the experience of your parents? I want you to think about how do you listen to sermons? How do you listen to instruction? How, how do you receive teaching? How do you receive correction? Are you content to remain naive and gullible or, or, or are you prepared to go and to pursue with all of your might wisdom? There's a second audience that's in mind. The second audience is more surprising than the first and it is the wise. The wise. That not only is it that the, that the young and the gullible are to pursue wisdom, that it must be the wise and the experienced that also pursue wisdom. Look at what he says. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. That is that one of the truest markers of a wise person is that they're never wise enough. One of the truest markers of a wise person is that they don't know enough. They don't yet have enough experience. See what happens in the life of a wise person is that when you gain wisdom, wisdom has a humbling effect on you. 
Because the more that you know, you've heard people say this, and it's so true. The more that you know, the more you become aware of what you don't know. And the more that you go through in your life, the more you realize that you don't have all of the tools in your toolkit that you need. And so the marker of the wise is that they are not wise enough. Rather, they want to keep on going. They want to keep on pursuing wisdom. They want to keep on growing in wisdom. And in that way, in that way, wisdom begets wisdom. Wisdom increases wisdom. Wisdom leads to wisdom. That, that wisdom brings humility. And humility brings with it teachability and the, the willingness of the wise to sit beneath teachers who may even know less than what they know and yet glean from them wisdom only serves to sharpen them and increase them greater for the days ahead. In fact, what I find to be true is that the wisest people that I know can listen to the very worst of sermons and glean something helpful from it. That's why so many of y'all keep coming back to hear me. Yeah, see what I did there? I was even thinking about, like, I took a class uh, last semester with a man named Tom Schreiner. And Tom Schreiner is a foremost theologian in our day. I mean, he's the, the guy is just brilliant, brilliant. He's written commentary upon commentary. He's just, just like, next level brilliant, okay? And we would do these live syncs in which we would come and, like, he basically, like, was sitting in his bedroom talking to all of the class. And we were able to ask him questions. And I was struck by how often he would say, yeah, I used to think this, but I've changed my mind. I used to think this, but I've changed my mind. And I may change my mind yet again on, a, on an interpretation of perhaps Romans 7 or, or something like that, or an eschatological view. And though here is a man who is brilliant, a man who would be, everybody else comes wanting what he has, wanting him to teach them. And he says, I am content to study the scriptures and to sit under good teaching and to read good books that they might correct me. That means that the inverse is also true. That one of the markers of the immature, one of the markers of the unwise is that they can only learn from the preachers they like and the teachers they prefer. That they can only glean wisdom from those that, that present it in a way that is tasteful and delightful to them. That, that if you are the kind of person that, that is unwilling to sit under a certain person's teaching or, or when a certain person preaches, you're, you're going to stay home rather than come. Well, then you are the kind of person that it says here in Proverbs 26, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Oh, that's foolishness. That's foolishness and it's arrogance. And it's a lack of humility to come and to bow yourselves and say, I am ready to learn from whomever, whatever I can. I am happy to hear anyone who loves Christ and upholds the sufficiency of the Bible to teach me something. Because I believe that through the Holy Spirit and through the sufficiency of the Bible, there is something there for me to gain. So I wonder what kind of position you find yourself in. I wonder if you're the kind of person that is always critiquing the message, critiquing the messenger, or if you're the kind of person that allows the message to critique you. That's the mark of wisdom, brothers and sisters. But the wise, the wise also have a responsibility. There's a juxtaposition that happens between verses 3 and verse 4. You'll see that in verse 3, we talked about how the, the, the young are supposed, the simple are supposed to receive instruction. But look at verse 4. Verse 4, the wise are to give it. They are to give it. They have wisdom, and having wisdom, they have a responsibility to communicate wisdom. Having discernment, they have a responsibility to teach discernment. Having prudence, they have a responsibility to give prudence. See, there can be 
even among those who are wise, even among those who are experienced, there can be a faux humility that comes in that says, I can't teach because I don't yet know enough. I can't teach because I have so much baggage in my life. I can't teach anyone to do anything. I can't disciple anyone in the faith because I still have more to learn. I haven't yet arrived at that place in my life. And what Proverbs says is it's not a question. Some of you have been a a Christian for decades, but of course you don't yet have it figured out. Of course you haven't yet arrived. But that does not relieve you of the responsibility to teach. The wise must keep increasing in knowledge. The wise must keep increasing in wisdom. But the wise must invite young men, young women, the simple, the naive, the gullible, the less experienced to join them in the pursuit, to go with them. That what we are to be as the wise, those that have went for years with the Lord, are to be trailblazers for the simple. That they might follow after us. That we might clearly mark the paths of prudence and the paths of discernment and the paths of wisdom. That they can go in our way. So I wonder this morning, will you teach? Will you teach? Are you willing to teach? I'm not even talking about in a formal classroom setting. I'm talking about taking responsibility for the children that are in your home. Will you teach them? I'm talking about taking responsibility for the men that you have lunch with at work every day. Will you teach them? I'm talking about the youth that are in our church. Will you take responsibility for them and teach them? I'm talking about the young mothers in our church. Will you teach them? I'm talking about the young singles in our church. Will you teach them? Will you take responsibility for or will you abdicate what God has rightfully charged you to do? Of course you haven't arrived yet. But you know Christ and you know life and you know enough. Invite them to come with you. So the first thing we see is that wisdom is a pursuit. It's a pursuit that begins when you're young and gullible, and it's a pursuit that continues all the way as you continue to grow and become experienced. Secondly, I want you to see that wisdom is a skill. That wisdom is a skill. In fact, the way that the Hebrews understood uh, wisdom is they understood wisdom primarily in the context of being a skill. In other words, they, they thought of wisdom maybe a little bit different than the way that we typically think of wisdom. They understood that you could be wise in one area of your life and yet foolish in the other area of your life. That you might be wise in blacksmithing or you might be wise in carpentry but yet be a fool in, in one or the other. That, that you could have this kind of duplicity in your life in which you are wise in an area and foolish in an area. And all of us have seen that kind of duplicity, haven't we? In fact, what we're going to find in Solomon's life is that Solomon himself has this kind of duplicity. And so there is a specific type of skill that uh, Proverbs chapter 1 has in mind. And you find it in verse 2. It's, it's two-tiered, okay? First, in the first part of chapter 2, we see that he has in, in mind skillful living skillful living and then in the second part he says understand words of insight that he has in mind skillful thinking skillful living and skillful thinking now i want you to think back if you were here with us last week when we defined what wisdom was we said that wisdom was the ability to honor and obey god in real life and in real time That it was the ability to have a Godward intuition that when the rubber meets the road and the heat was bearing down and the difficulties were there in front of you, that you were able to make a decision that wasn't spelled out in black and white in the Bible, thus saith the Lord, but rather in a way that was intuitive, in a way that was Godward, in a way that would highlight the goodness of God in real world 
situations. And I think that's exactly what uh, the Proverbs have in mind here in verse 2. That this idea that I can, I can live skillful, skillfully and I can think skillfully simultaneously while living a real life in the real world in real time. Now, the first part of verse 2 is expounded upon in verses 3 and 4. In other words, verses 3 and 4 give us greater detail into the kind of skillful living that it's talking about. Look at what it says. It says, uh, to receive wisdom. So, to know wisdom and instruction and to understand words of insight. Now, we're going back to that first part of chapter 2 when it says, receive instruction in wise dealing. Now, the word instruction there can be translated as discipline. As discipline. That the idea here is that you that to attain wisdom is a work of discipline. That it is the work of chastisement. It is the work of self-control in your life. Now that's not how we want to attain wisdom, is it? What we prefer is like an, a, a bolt of lightning moment of enlightenment, right? Like you can think of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church. He goes and he's searching for wisdom and he has this lightning bolt type experience where the, the angel comes and presents to him and gives him this particular revelation. And, certainly, cert- and suddenly Joseph Smith is all wise and that's what we want, is it not? Like don't you want to go to sleep one night and wake up and say, I'm wise now. Like, now I know the answers to the question. But what we're seeing here is that the reason that most people are not wise, the reason that true skillful living, truly skillfully living is a rare commodity in today's age is that it doesn't come as a lightning bolt. It doesn't come as a moment of, of enlightenment. Rather, it comes through a lifetime of gradual growth. It comes through a lifetime of self control. It comes through a lifetime of, of discipline, of putting one foot in front of the other and slowly and gradually over time accumulating wisdom on the pursuit of wisdom that you might continue to grow and to understand. But it's also important to see that the kind of knowledge that he's talking about is supposed to result in righteousness, justice, and equity. That is that wisdom, wisdom is not just intellectual, wisdom is moral. Wisdom is about the formation of my character. That the kind of skillful living that he's talking about here is a disciplined character. Character isn't formed in an instant. Character isn't formed in a moment of enlightenment. Character is formed over time as you wrestle with what is true. And it begins to permeate who you are over time. So that what you have learned and what you know begins to work itself out into the way that you think and how you now live. That's not all he says. Next he says to give prudence. I'm sorry about that. To give, I hit the button. To give prudence to the simple. To give prudence to the simple. So so the idea here is not just that you would have a, a disciplined character. But the idea here also is that you would have, that you would have a, a shrewd competence. That you would have a shrewd competence. That the word here for prudence can be translated as shrewd. Now, I don't know about y'all, but it kind of takes me aback a little bit when I read the word shrewd in the Bible. When we think about people that are shrewd, we usually think of like unsavory, I, don't, I mean, I hate to say this, but like car salesman type people. You know what I'm saying? But n- none of y'all, none of y'all that sell cars, I'm talking about the, the stereotype that sells cars. You know what I'm saying, right? We, we think about those kinds of people that are always looking to kind of take advantage of us, but that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is the fact that it is not a virtue to be taken advantage of. 
It is not virtuous to go and live through the world as though everything is idealistic and pie in the sky that no one will ever try to take, take advantage of you. Rather, rather, there is a type of wise shrewdness that comes when you begin to understand the world that you live in. That the shrewdness that it's talking about is the kind of knowledge and understanding of the world that keeps the world from destroying you. That keeps the world from, from crushing down on you in a way that, that can bring harm to you and to your wife and to your kids and to those people that are close to you and to your church. It's an understanding that the world operates and the world operates in a world that is cursed and broken and flawed. But then look what else he says. He says, knowledge and discretion. That, that also what we see here is that there is to be a discerning comprehension. That the word discretion here has in mind discerning. That I'm supposed to have this ability to not just know things, okay? That there is supposed to be knowledge, but this knowledge is supposed to lead to discretion. This knowledge is supposed to lead to discernment. That the knowledge that I have in my mind intellectually is supposed to lead to my ability to analyze morally the situation that is in front of me. That I'm supposed to be able to see a situation that may be in the gray areas of life. That may be in the hard areas of life. That may not be clear and thus saith the Lord you ought to do this. But rather I'm able to look at one of those situations in the gray area and I'm able to see truth from lie. I'm able to see bad from good. I'm able to see harmful from helpful. That I'm able to have discretion in those moments so that I can respond with a skillful response. I think we can see this played out in what I read to start the service from Proverbs chapter 5. What, what you find in the book of Proverbs, and we're going to talk about this a little at the end of the sermon, is that wisdom and foolishness are often personified Throughout the book of Proverbs, that they're they're given from uh, they're 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 given to us in the form of a person, so that we can kind of more helpfully see how this might look in our lives. Well, in Proverbs chapter five, this idea of deception, this idea of of being enticed, of being tempted, takes on the persona of a forbidden woman. So certainly, adultery is in view; it's most clearly in view. But it's not just adultery that's in view; it's any temptation. It's, it's, it's any vulnerability. It's any reality that might tempt you away from God and draw you away from God into the sinful world. And so what does he say? For the lips of a forbidden woman do what? They drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. That kind of reminds us of that car salesman, doesn't it? That they drip with oil and they're smooth with oil, with, with, they're smooth as oil. They, they know how to, they know, she knows how to say it. She knows how to be charming. She knows how to be impressive. She knows how to run the game on you, man. And it looks good. It looks enticing. It looks right. It looks exciting. It looks delightful. It looks enjoyable. But. In the end, she is bitter as worm-eaten wood. She is as sharp as a two-edged sword that she is going to cut you in half, man. She's going to destroy you. So skillful living, skillful living is the ability to see the bitterness on the front side. Skillful living is the ability to discern the consequences before the action. It's the, able, the ability to see the connectedness of life so that you can avoid the destruction of the two-edged storm, so that you can avoid the bitterness that comes as a response. 
That is, it's to have the kind of character that can withstand the temptation. It's to have the kind of competence, the shrewd competence that, they, that you expect the temptation. And it's to have the discerning comprehension that you're able to see through the temptation so that you're able to respond to it. So I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your life. Is your life characterized by skillful living? Is your life characterized by this kind of discipline that's one foot in front of the other? Are you constantly coming, maybe even to church every Sunday, hoping that that moment you're going to have this breakthrough, lightning bolt enlightenment? Oh, that's a foolish pursuit. It'll never happen. Because your character must be forged over time. Your heart must be reformed over time. Your discernment must be trained over time. But it's not just a skillful living that he has in view. It's skillful thinking that he has in view. And I think this is really important for us. Look at the second part of verse 2 there. He says, just understand words. And I think a really important day in our age, insight. To have insight. That is, to be able to cut through the noise and see the truth. That is, to have some level of understanding of hard-to-understand situations and circumstances. To have some nugget of wisdom that you can apply to situations that maybe five, ten years ago would have left you in a quandary. To have insight into life that you can pass down to your children as an inheritance. That you can tell them about as you drive to school or as they go and experience the various crises of growing up. That he has in his mind this ability, and this is, this is interesting, to understand a proverb, a saying, and perhaps the most unique of all, riddles. The w- words of the wise and their riddles. That, that in other words, he's teaching us something about the nature of Proverbs. We think of Proverbs as these short little pithy one-liners. Like, we think of Proverbs like tweets, right? Like, you, you get on Twitter and you see these tweets, you're like, man, that is so good. How did they get all of that into that little bitty 240 character uh, word, uh, uh, sentence there? But Proverbs aren't meant to be like that. that. That's a form of Proverbs, but Proverbs are also given as parables in the Bible. And Proverbs are given as allegories in the Bible. And Proverbs, it says, are even given as riddles in the Bible. That is that Proverbs are not meant to be read quickly and pass over. They're meant to be chewed on the way that a a cow chews on cud. They're meant to be mulled over. They're meant to be lived in. They're meant to be wrestled with. They're meant to be meditated upon and marinated in. They're meant to be absorbed into the person. Why is it that God would speak in a riddle? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus often spoke. We think of the parables. I've heard people interpret parables as being things that, are, that illustrate hard truths that are, that, and make them easier to understand. Except, except every stinking time the disciples come to Jesus and they say, I didn't understand anything that you just said. Can you help me here? Why is it that they did that? Because the journey to wisdom is as important as the wisdom itself. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just that... Wisdom is about what to think. That's what we want. We want somebody to tell us what to think. This is what you should think. But wisdom is more than that. Wisdom is not just telling you what to think. Wisdom is telling you how to think. It's training you on how to process a situation. How to think in a way that is Godward. How to think in a way that is analytical and theological at the same time. To think in a way that allows you to take what God has said and apply it to a real life situation. And so they are meant to be mulled over. They are meant to be, you're, you're meant to spend time with them. That is, the Bible is intended 
to be an intrusion on your life. You understand that? We want a faith that is microwavable. We want a faith that is tweetable. We, we want a faith that is a drive-through faith, right? Let me drive through the Burger King here and get a couple nuggets of wisdom because I'm having a hard day. And so we spend five minutes in the Bible or we try to find the easiest study that we can to, to break it down in the simplest terms so that we can move on about our day and get as far, far from it as we can and go and do all the other stuff that's in real life. Wisdom isn't attained that way. Wisdom comes from wrestling with the text. Wisdom comes from journeying to, to, to find out what the answer is. Wisdom comes from sleepless nights and mulling over how God, what God has said and why that matters in real life. Wisdom comes as you're working at Honda on the assembly line, but in the back of your mind is what God has said in his word, and you're trying to make sense of it, and you're trying to see how it's helpful to you. That is, wisdom isn't a microwavable dinner. And wisdom is not a drive-through meal. Wisdom is more like the meal that you spend hours and hours preparing to get it just right. It's when you go and you get the steak and you marinate it and you make it good and you season it just right and you let it soak in all the oils and, and take in all the tenderizer and, and become juicy and perfect and you grill it just to perfection. It's when you take the green beans and you don't just pour a can into a pot, stir it up and serve it. No, you go and you buy the fresh green beans and you make them pretty and bright green and seasoned with sea salt, right? And, and do it and, and done just the right way and, and you lay them on the plate just in the certain way. As you, you go and you, you labor over that German chocolate cake, amen? Like you don't just go buy the one at, 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 at Winn-Dixie in the bakery. You go and you get the materials and from scratch, hours upon hours. And you look around your kitchen and there's flour here and dishes there and pots over there. And the grill has got to be clean. It's just a mess. And you take hours and hours. But you sit down and the plate is so beautiful. And you don't just scarf that down in the driver's seat of your car like you do a drive through Whopper, do you? No. You sit down and you savor it, man. You savor it. And the work that it took you to get there makes you slow down and enjoy it all the more. That is, in the scripture, it's not just about knowledge. It's about the appreciation of that knowledge. It's about the love of that knowledge. It's about the understanding of the background of that knowledge. And so the Bible is given to us in a way that we can't just breeze through it and we can't just blow through it. And it's not just filled with tweets, it's filled with things that we're meant to think upon. Things that are meant to infringe upon our schedules and infringe upon our priorities. That we can't go and do all the things that we want to do because we need to read the Bible. We can't go and enjoy all of the entertainment on television because we need to read the Bible. We, we, we can't just go and live footloose and fancy free because we have a higher priority. The attainment of knowledge and the attainment of knowledge does not come quickly. Is your faith, is your faith an intrusion upon your life? If your faith is not an intrusion the way that travel ball is an intrusion... Your faith is not an intrusion in the way that your boss demanding extra hours is an intrusion... If your faith is not an intrusion, the way that your favorite hobby is an intrusion. Oh, brothers and sisters, you have no faith at all. You have no faith at all. For this, this is the beginning of knowledge. This is the beginning of truth. And it's meant to be forged in you as character over time. So wisdom is skillful living and wisdom is skillful thinking. 
And finally, I want you to see that wisdom is a person. Wisdom is a person. There are these two audacious claims that are made by Solomon here in verse 7. The first claim that he makes is that you can know God. You can. You can know God. That he is knowable. That if, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, then the implication of that is, is that you can actually have knowledge of the God who created all of this. Knowledge of the God who set all of this into motion. Who made me and you in his own image. The knowledge of the God who created the water cycle and, and threw up the galaxies into the sky. You can actually know him, the creator, the living God. The second, the second audacious claim that he makes is that this is the Lord. This is all caps if you read it in an English Bible, which means this is Yahweh, right? That, in other words, this is what he's saying. The God who made everything can be known. And I know him. I know him. We know him. That if we are in Christ and we have been brought into a covenant relationship with God through the access provided to us by Christ, then what that means is not just God can be known, but that I know him. And if he can be known, and he can, and then if he has revealed himself, and he has, and if I do know him, and I do, then the responsibility that I have to understand life and the responsibility that I have as a man in our church and a man in my house and a man in my community and that you have as a man or a woman in the same positions is to know him as he actually is. That is the fear of the Lord. That we will not seek to modernize God. That we will not seek to domesticate, domesticate God. That we will not seek to sanitize God or to make him more palatable to 21st century sensibilities. But that we, because we can know God and do know God and God has revealed himself to us, will know him as he actually is. That is, that we will recognize that Descartes got it exactly wrong. That he was not the beginning of knowledge. The Lord was the beginning of knowledge. And the Lord, in fact, Descartes only had any concept of who he was because God made him and told him. And implanted it on his heart. So for many of us, what we need to do is we need to begin reconstructing our worldviews. And that's hard to do. I get that. We need to begin reconstructing our thinking. Where we're not the center. Where my feelings are not the center. Where my thoughts are not the center. Where my opinions are not the center. But where the knowledge of the Lord is the center. Where the knowledge of the Lord is the beginning and not me. Where the knowledge of the Lord is, beginning and, is the beginning and not your psychology professor. Where the knowledge of the Lord is the beginning and not your favorite political pundit. Where the knowledge of the Lord is the building blocks of all that has been said. And all that is true. And all that has been known and all that can be known. When we think about the beginning, the idea I think we think of so often is like a chronological line. We think of the fear of the Lord as being the beginning point. And then once we have the fear of the Lord, once we know who God is and we know God, that it's now our responsibility to move on from it and get on to the rest of life. Or in other words, get on to real wisdom. On how do I marry and what college do I go to and what kind of job do I have to have and how do I manage my money and what kind of friend and what kind of neighbor. How do I live through all of this life? That is a, a faulty understanding of the Bible. 
That is nowhere found in any of the scripture. In fact, it is, a comp, it is an antithetical to the gospel. The gospel that says that the fear of the Lord infiltrates all of life. What's more helpful is to think of it like a pyramid. That the fear of the Lord is the foundation. In the way that 2 plus 2 is the foundation for calculus. In the way that, that learning your ABCs is foundational to reading Charles Dickens. That the fear of the Lord is foundational. And if you take away 2 plus 2, you lose calculus. You take away the ABCs, you lose Dickens. But the fear of the Lord is what wisdom is built upon. And if you take away the fear of the Lord, you lose wisdom. You lose the ability to be able to interpret your life. You lose the ability to be able to understand why is happening, what's happening to you, and how to respond to it. That is, if you lose sight of the fact that wisdom is a person and not a thought or a realization, but a person, you lose wisdom altogether. I mentioned earlier that wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs is personified. And it's personified, I think, that we might understand that wisdom here starts with a person. The fear of the Lord. But looking forward to that new covenant reality in which Christ would come. And do you remember how John presents Christ? He is the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God in the beginning. That is the Word was the personification in and of himself of wisdom. That is wisdom. doesn't just build on a person. Wisdom leads you to a person. It leads you to Christ. That if you are going to know wisdom in this world, you must know Christ and you must enter through Christ for he is the gate to wisdom and he is the path of wisdom and he is the grace of wisdom. So this morning, this morning, as we study the essence of wisdom, what I implore all of you to do, seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Let's pray to the Lord this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.